Okay, guys, we're, we're going to start. We like to be um, uh, punctual, uh, if we can, because we realise you've all got homes to go to and dinners and other people in your lives. Um, so welcome, and uh, um, I think we're in for a, a very special treat. We've got two real experts um, to my right and left. I'm going to participate as little as possible. I'm only here as a referee, in case they start squabbling. <laughs> I don't think so. But, you know, it's always good just to have somebody as a sort of balancing factor. Um, also, um, I did want to put it in context for those people uh, who haven't been to a culture and ideas um, session. Is there anybody here who has never been to SCAF at w to one of these talks? Oh, well, quite a few of you. So let me put it into context and forgive me for boring you, the others. Um, we do four projects. It's a not-for-profit, you know that. And we do four projects a year. Um, the remit is uh, 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 Australia, the Asia-Pacific region and the Middle East. There's a seat in front if anyone wants to come. And... Um, Australia, the Asia-Pacific and the Middle East, and uh, really the Pacific is our next exhibition with Greg Semu from Samoa. Uh, and then the first exhibition of next year is uh, Shigeru Ban, an architect, uh, the major architect from Japan. Um, so... Uh, but since we closed the commercial gallery, which is almost 10 years ago now, um, we moved out of uh, a, a sort of almost exclusive focus on contemporary art into architecture, fashion, film design, um, and fashion, film design. I think I've got it right. So um, it's... Four, there are four projects a year. There are four publications a year. We put an enormous amount of thought and give an enormous amount of attention to the publications. Hardly anyone buys them. But we send them all over the world. Uh, I think people just don't buy books anymore. Uh, we send them all over the world to libraries, to curators, Rachel, to museums uh, in Australia as well as um, all over uh, the Asia-Pacific, America, Europe, um, often to people who have visited SCAF, but not necessarily, and they go to libraries as well. We print about 500 and we send out about 150 to 175 catalogues. The postage costs us not as much as the catalogues, but the postage is a substantial cost. Uh, and this we do as part of our education program. And then to add to the education program, we do this Culture and Ideas series. Basically, it started nine years ago with uh, nine sessions a year. Margaret Throsby did a session for every project. There were only three in those days, uh, four now adding architecture. Margaret Throsby uh, did one with whoever was the artist or curator or architect, whoever it was. Uh, Caroline Bohm always uh, curated her own session with a writer, and I usually did a panel discussion, a bit like I'm doing tonight, but um, because I've got two such expert people, I, I don't, I'm not really needed tonight. And now, out of nine, we had three uh, projects, um, three sessions per project, that's nine, um, per year, and now we've got about 30, 30 to 40. So this Culture and Ideas series has grown enormously. Children, we've got a project for children on Saturday. We've got you guys tonight. Uh, we had a film screening last Saturday. We've got a film screening the following uh, Saturday, really one a week almost, sometimes two a week. This week we've got two. So um, so welcome and, and enjoy it. It's all completely free. When we have films, we have popcorn. Uh, and when we don't have films, we don't. I don't know, <laughs> what can I, <laughs> where's the popcorn? Rachel's feeling deprived. Now <laughs> I'm going to introduce our two wonderful speakers. I'll start with uh, Rachel. I've probably known Rachel uh, longer, uh, I think I have, 20 years, Rachel. 
Oh, God. Um, look, I think Rachel is um, one of, if not the top curator in Australia. I've always felt that. Um, I wrote to her after Telling Tales, uh, the show. There's a curator. It's still on, is it, Rachel? Yes, until October. That's on at the Museum of Contemporary Art now. And it is just a fabulous, fabulous show. Curating is, is a funny kind of a job. Um, maybe these guys will tell you more about it, but it used to be taking care of from the word, the Latin root, cure, or to take cure of the, from the church. You know, uh, the what's it called, the person in the church? The curate. curate, yes. The curate. That was the the root of the word, and that's how curators worked in museums. But it's become a totally different... It's, it's, it's retained its old uh, definition or job description and it's gone much further now. And in French, there are, which is my other language, there are two different words for the curators that work today. One is called conservateur or trice, if it's a woman, which is to take care of, look after. And the other is called commissaire, de, from a boy or a man or woman, d'exposition, which means to commission a show. And uh, English hasn't made that distinction and the French use it depending on what the curator actually does. So Rachel is both a conservator and a commissaire d'exposition. In English, the only word that I know of is independent curator, but you're not an independent curator because you're in an institution. So English hasn't really coped with this, and I don't know German uh, and uh, the other languages. Uh, it's only French and English that I can talk about. So uh, really with Rachel, she's done a number of... Sh she's the chief curator at the MCA, which means the, the most senior person at the MCA after Lizanne McGregor and the one who really drives the, the uh, exhibition program and collecting program. Um, the uh, people she's worked with, Kutluk uh, Atam, that we've worked with as well over the years, was uh, have been Kutluk Ataman, Oliver Eliasson, we had a um, project here, Mark Parr, of, with whom we worked, of course, during the commercial days. And then the uh, shows that Rachel have done that have stood out for me, and there have been many, so I'm only selecting two or three, is Liquid Sea in 2003. I still remember that show in detail. Um, Yoko Ono, I always, I had the opportunity to show Yoko Ono here and I, in my selling days and I said, no, can you believe it? Um, <laughs> I said, no, I didn't like the work. I thought, I don't know how I'm going to persuade anybody and then uh, to buy anything. And then uh, Rachel did the show and I thought, what a fool you were, Jean. Uh, and Telling Tales, which has been an all-time favourite. She's done shows that have travelled, Yinka Shonibara and Ruma Islam, that have travelled to America. And she's a very, very senior curator within not just Sydney, but the Australian scene and known outside as well. Now, Erin and I have known each other not that much uh, shorter uh, I mean, we've known each other for a long time. Erin, uh, in 1996, Sherman Galleries as a commercial gallery opened in 86. And um, Melissa Chu, who is now the director of the Hershorn Museum and was previously the uh, director of the Asia Society in New York, Melissa actually applied to me for a job and then decided she she didn't like me or like the job, I'm not sure. I think she wanted to be more curatorial and less connected to sales. And she started the uh, Gallery 4A with a group of artists in 1996. And both of them were artists with whom I was working, John Young and Guan Wei, right, Erin? And uh, then Melissa left, you know, worked there for many years and then left and went on to New York and did these enormously important uh, jobs. And now Hershorn Museum in Washington is a major museum. So she's really sort of top of the pops now. One of these Australian expats who has uh, really made, uh, uh, made waves. Erin uh, joined uh, 4A at some point, I don't remember exactly when, but when he became the uh, director of 4A, that's when you really came into my consciousness. And um, 4A is a remarkable institution, really. It 
is it's a sort of grassroots institution on the one hand, you know, uh, speaking to Asian Australian artists that might not have the opportunity to have conversations at the MCA, for example, or at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, but it's also, Erin uh, has brought some very significant Asian artists to Australia, and amongst them, and the people that I've worked with, uh, have been the Yonatanis, uh, Ken and Julia, some of you will remember that work, uh, also Song Dong, uh, who's a great favourite of mine, and Araya, whom I wanted to... I can never pronounce her surname, so I'll just keep it s- simple. But she is um, somebody I wanted to work with, and I got dissuaded. I'm very seldom dissuaded by outside forces, but I just got dissuaded, you know, and I, I regret it. And then Aaron did the show, and it was too late. So um, that, that's it. <laughs> And uh, he also did a marvellous show called uh, Edge, uh, Edge of Elsewhere. Elsewhere, yeah, which was touring as well, wasn't it? Yes. So that's my connection with these two. I mean, you wouldn't have two more senior curatorial people with um, a background, uh, in Rachel's case, not necessarily in Asia. Erin is now at the Queensland Art Gallery uh, and managing and running and directing their uh, Asia and Pacific programs. But really, this this is a treat for, for me as well. And I'm not going to say another word, I promise. <laughs> Rach, you start. Women first. Wow. Well, it's very old-fashioned, but I don't care. <laughs> well, I think you can uh, start by telling us a bit about the MCA when it was founded. Just give a context and, um, and talk about the uh, shows that you've done that relate in some way to Asia. Okay. Uh, Well, I'm hoping everybody here has visited the Museum of Contemporary Art at some point. Yeah. Okay. I'm asking: Has everyone? Has someone not visited? Because it's your chance to rectify that. (laughs) We're on circular key. (laughs) Anyway, the MCA actually came about through a university bequest through Sydney University originally, um, but it moved into its current site, which is located on circular key, you know, across the water from the Opera House near the bridge um, in 1989. Um, I joined the MCA in the year 2000, uh, which was quite a period of transition because the museum was struggling financially. It had a new director in Lizanne McGregor. And I remember thinking at that time, because I knew Lizanne a little bit from Birmingham from her previous role, and I thought, oh, if this woman can come from the other side of the world to this stricken institution, I can come from Melbourne. I'll give it a go. And I still remember one state museum director saying, oh, ask six months' salary in advance. (laughs) I I never forgave him. (laughs) I still remember. Um, Anyway, happily, um, over that period, it it underwent a huge transformation. It took us about five years um, to stabilise financially. It was very rocky. Uh, We had very little money. We couldn't really program for more than six months out because we didn't know if we were going to close. It's unbelievable looking back. (laughs) Um, However, we made a new sort of parent relationship with uh, the state government, which was very important in terms of anchoring us with a financial base. Uh, We've always been kind of lean and mean in that we go out and we fundraise very hard um, and we continue to do that. So these days we have roughly one third government funding, you know, state, federal, as well as local. Uh, And the remaining two thirds of our funding, we still raise, which is huge. It's a lot more than most of the state galleries. Um, And I should say that the MCA is an unusual institution because it sits outside of the state system. So that's where, you know, Aaron's institution and mine differ. We're a little bit smaller. Uh, We're a little bit leaner financially. We raise a lot of our funds. So we're very entrepreneurial because we have to be. Um, But we're also the only museum in this country that is solely dedicated to the art of today. Uh, We have both a permanent collection and we have teensy-weensy funds for acquisition, so we focus them on local practice. We support Australian artists' work, but we also have a very large, constantly changing exhibitions program, which is international. So that's how we manage our balance. 
Um, I have to say it's been an amazing ride. You know, once we sort of stabilised financially, we went, okay, we can start planning. (laughs) Amazing. We can start really thinking big, punching above our weight, you know, programming some really increasingly ambitious shows. Um, And as you probably all know, eventually we went, right, let's look at the building because, you know, it was a government building. Um, It had low ceilings, had a lot of columns, quite challenging to work with as a museum for art. Um, And so we thought, we need a new wing. We need some kind of refurbishment. And so we worked slowly but surely towards that and we opened the new building um, about three and a half years ago. Uh, and it's been unbelievable, the transformation. What are your... Andrew, there's a seat so, especially for you with your name on it. There's right no way here. out, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> You've made a grand oh, entrance. You're stuck. <laughs> yeah. Rachel, can I ask a question before we move over to Aaron? And that is, tell people the number... Uh, you, you remember when it was paid entry yes. and then they changed that yeah. and what the numbers are like roughly nowadays? Well, again, I remember clearly when I started, um, it was very poorly patronised. Um, there was a door charge at the old MCA, and I can even remember as an art student from Melbourne, I'd come to Sydney you know, quite a bit because I wanted to see everything I could, and even I would cringe and shudder at paying the entry fee as an art student. I just hate the idea of it. Um, in um, 2006, for the Sydney Biennale, we thought, okay, we've stabilised financially, we're able to plan in the longer term, we're starting to think bigger, we need to get rid of the door charge. And um, actually, um, with the support of the corporate community, we were able to do that. And the fascinating thing is that the minute the door charge went slowly, surely, our numbers went up and up and up and we ended up quadrupling our attendance. And the funny thing is that, um, and this is a good lesson for all institutions when they argue about door charges, actually you make more money without a door charge. Uh, (laughs) If you want to be really financially savvy, um, people, yeah, I mean... For a big public institution, maybe you can get away with it, but for a smaller contemporary institution, people don't know what they're paying for. It's a risk. They don't know they're going to get, you know, Monet and the Water Lilies or Ancient China or whatever it may be. They're taking a risk, so it's a lot harder for them to pay. Yet if they come in for free, statistically they generally spend more in the bookshop, in the cafe and so on anyway. So it's actually been an incredibly successful policy, getting rid of that door charge. And currently our annual attendance is around about a million visitors a year, which I think, you know, for contemporary art is unheard of. I I tell people all over the world, I say, guess how many visitors? (laughs) And they go, really? Amazing, (laughs) really. It's really good for for artists today. Now, Erin, why don't you go back to 4A and tell a little bit. I don't know when you started uh, exactly, before you became that very dynamic director that you later became. And, um, <clears throat> you know, what what the origins were and just a bit of context. So I began working at 4A. I did, did an interview with Melissa in December of 1999. Really? And mm. uh, started <laughs> off as a... Uh, she'll often say that I was her intern and I was not. <laughs> I, I, I started off as a gallery assistant, then uh, an assistant curator, then, a, then the curator. And then I had some time away um, working as an independent curator. Uh, I did a number of big exhibitions. Um, I curated Primavera at the MCA. Uh-huh. And then I also curated a big uh, exp- uh, survey show of, of contemporary art from Asia and the Pacific at Campbelltown Art Centre called News from Islands. Um, and uh, then, I came, then I came back to Foray as, as the director. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I what sp- year was that? Oh, that's a good question now. Um, um, Early 2000s, was that? No, no, that was when I, that was, when I was um, um, 
would have been about 2009. Yes, not importantly exact, yeah. but yeah. roughly yeah. 2009. Um, and then? And I suppose it had a similar situation to what Rachel was describing in terms of having to rebuild an organisation. I mean, 4A is a minnow compared to, I mean, if, if, <laughs> if, if uh, compared to um, the MCA, of course. But similar, similar issues in terms of uh, rebuilding uh, a donor base, um, reconnecting with with artists, making sure that all of the our relationships with with local, um, state, and federal government were in were in place, uh, in order for us to then begin to uh, curate much more ambi ambitious programs. And I I very early on I um, understood that the the Having, having big ideas and being able to develop those uh, larger projects were the things was the thing that was going to um, provide us with that momentum for fun, funding and for uh, our reputation and, and all of those things so that was there was a risk I think that was that we did take um, but I was supported by a very very good board and um, that I think is very important for all Nonprofits and probably all kinds of institutions, and um, being able to think strategically. I mean, the, the board was was both made up of artists and people involved in the arts, but also people who have um, um, business careers, and so that the being able to strategize and and organize. Um, um, the governance and also the program in in relationship to those different different strengths that were on the board was was something that um, I, I learned a lot from actually um, yeah and just uh, because Rachel has stayed at the MCA sort of going up in the hierarchy you went up too but in a much smaller institution yeah. just talk for a minute about your move to Queensland so. Um, <laughs> 2015, I've been in Brisbane for nearly 15 months. Um, I, ca I, I was appointed curatorial manager of Asian and Pacific art. And so what that means is that I manage the Asian and Pacific uh, department at the Queensland Art Gallery. Mm. And uh, my predecessor was Russell Storer. Mm. And before that, Sahanya had, had um, been in that position yes. before she became... Sahanya now is yeah. going to M Plus in yeah. Hong Kong, yeah. as those who are in the art world know. Yeah. And um, uh, Russell is now at the National Gallery in Singapore, uh, which is a $500 million refurbished building, two buildings, old buildings, that have been knitted together uh, in order to provide a, um, a forum for art from Southeast Asia, including Singapore, uh, from the earliest times, from colonial times to to the present. You know, Raffles started Singapore, Stamford Raffles, uh, under the British government. He had all sorts of squabbles with the government, but he fought through them, and that was the beginning of Singapore. So they're really collecting from all these Asians. Have you been, Rach? To Singapore, the new, the new, no, not the new. It's an ex extraordinary. It's five hundred million Australian dollars in a country that has a population of three. Uh, it's probably a bit more now, but say five million people. It's the population of Sydney, and yet we can't seem to conceive of building a gallery here for the same amount when we've got a country of 23 million. It seems odd, you know, that they somehow have managed and see the importance. So Russell's gone there, Aaron's taken Russell's position, and um, and uh, I'll come back to Rachel in a minute, but tell us a little bit about Queensland now, Aaron. It's warm. It's <laughs> warm. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, as uh, the... I mean, we, I, I was born in Sydney, so I can make jokes about Brisbane. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, and people in Brisbane said this as well, that, the, that there has been a big shift in the way in which the city um, um, imagines itself. And mostly that has been being done through uh, the, the gallery. So firstly through the Queensland Art Gallery and its mm -hmm. collections, and then the establishment of the Asia-Pacific Triangle in 1993, and then the, um, the building of GOMA uh, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So um, the 
culture in Brisbane is uh, is thriving in that in that sense. Thriving. And in, in theatre, in dance, they've got that Chinese guy whose name I always forget, but Liu uh, Kung Chin, or uh, Tsung, is that how you pronounce it, Rachel? Yes, he, you know, he was the guy who uh, came out now, of China Mao's last answer. He's gone to uh, Brisbane some time ago. He's running the ballet company there. I mean, it's not the hick country town it was when I first started going uh, at all. Sorry, call, apologies to anyone from Brisbane, but really it was <laughs> very, very provincial and it's the gallery that has brought it into the, uh, the, the, the 21st century. So, all right, Rachel, let's go back to you and talk about some of the shows that you've done with specific emphasis on the Asia-Pacific. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I've had a very long-standing interest in engagement with contemporary practice in the Asian region. Um, and, in fact, I can tell you my job interview at the MCA, <laughs> they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I've got this great idea. And, and you know, it's this exhibition, it's Japanese, you know, it's this, it's this. I've even given it a title. It's called Neo-Tokyo. I remember that show very well. <laughs> well, they gave me the job, so I was like, right, okay, <laughs> let's talk Japan. Um, and I've been going back ever since. Um, I mean, that's a country I particularly love. I've spent a lot of time in going back and forth. I've worked with a very large number of Japanese artists over the years and currently I'm just finalising a beautiful big summer show um, which is part of the Sydney International Arts Series and that's a beautiful career survey by Tatsuo Miyajima, one of the great Japanese artists who works with LED or light-based technology. Um, now beyond that, um, I guess one thing that I've always really loved about the MCA is that it sees itself as you know, very much part of the Asia-Pacific region. It's always had projects that reach out and connect around the region. I can remember, again, as a student, when I'd go and visit the MCA, I remember shows like Malgo's Pop, for example, mm. um, which were... 92-ish. Yeah, that was yes, so important. Such a seminal show. Absolutely. And, and of course, you know, Judy Anir's exhibition, Zones of Love, which was, you know, the seminal Japanese show with Dumb Type and Miyajima and all sorts of others. And in fact, you know, when I'd proposed Neo-Tokyo, it was as a way to kind of build on that legacy and bring it into the present and look at globalisation in relation to Japan. Um, I've worked with a range of artists from China as well. I mean, mainland China as well as Taiwan and Hong Kong. Um, and, you know, travel quite extensively in the region. But I feel like, you know, there's a lot more I would like to do. <laughs> Is there resistance on the part of the MCA, the board, or even Lausanne, or uh, the group of people who uh, either accept or reject the shows that you put forward, is there resistance? Do they want to slant it in one direction or another? No. Rachel, no. They're actively aware and wanting to be involved with the region, which is so important. I mean, it's a central, it's, it's the dialogue of this country. I always, when I talk to visitors to this country and, you know, I have a friend coming from the US next week, he's never been here. And of course, you know, how do you explain a strange place like Australia to this New Yorker and I sort of say well you know first of all it's got a very interesting colonial legacy which has never been resolved remains fraught to this day but additional to that you've got a country that's been set up with a British parliamentary system but it runs according to American free market economy principles and it's situated geographically in the Asian region. <laughs> so it's, it's all sorts of different things, but ultimately it is part of the Asia-Pacific region. That's where its future is, that's where its trade is, that's where its population is, that's where its population flow is. And that, I think, has been something that the MCA has been able to really pick up on and move with quite nicely because, as I said, it's a smaller institution. It's not a state gallery, so we can work quite proactively and we can move swiftly when we see the opportunity. You know, I want to share with you uh, our response personally. I said I wasn't going to talk much, but I seem to be... <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Rachel did a show, and it's not on this list unless I've forgotten the title, Rachel, and that was the show with Jung Hwan and that sculptural yes. piece and family portraits. What was that called again? Um, that was an exhibition called Witness. And That's it was, right. Yeah, about the ways that artists address history through their practice, often quite difficult or traumatic histories. And what sort of date was it? Do you, do you remember? 2004 yes, or something? Yes, it was 2004. Yes. Because I was horrendously pregnant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was about to explode. I remember that time. <laughs> Well, uh, Brian and I walked into that show, and he was an unknown artist to us. His name uh, is Jung Hwan, uh, Z-H-A-N-G, and Hwan H-U-A-N, in, written in, in Latin script. And there was a series of family, a called family portrait on the walls, um, going with his own face and with calligraphy on his face, going from... Um, uh, just imprint of the uh, calligraphy and then darker and darker until the final face, there were nine of them, was pitch black. And Brian walked in and said, Jean, we should buy this work. And I said, what do you mean, the whole work? And he said, yes, the whole work. And we did. And it cost, um, I'd, you know, I'm never shy about money. It cost $65,000. It was so cheap now. <laughs> it's so cheap now. It was in an edition of maybe three or five, I can't remember. And there were subsequent works um, of the same images, but much smaller. These are very grand works. And they are now uh, on loan to the National Gallery in Canberra. You can go and see them. They'll be there till December. And it turned out to be a majorly sensible and important acquisition um, in terms of what Rachel just said, the rise in price, the rise in importance of the artist and um, there was a, another sculptural piece in the middle of that show with a bell uh, in bronze and I said to Brown wouldn't it be easier just to buy the bell you know rather than these nine uh, and he said no I don't think the bell's good I, it was in I a want, collection want, Jean. it was in a collection anyway <laughs> we didn't we didn't go there he wanted the works and really they have uh, turned out they were shown at the art gallery of new south wales in go is they're beautiful works and important works so that came out of one of rachel's shows something i want to share with this audience because i don't see that many people i know here is when you go into a museum show <clears throat> When it says on the labelling, collection of the artist, or even um, mentions the galleries, but doesn't say private collection or a collection of uh, Gene Sherman or, or Andrew Cameron or X and Y, that work is available. It's, it's never said out openly, but actually it is. And I think, you know, I'm not a believer in mystification. I think... People need to know what they need to know. So if you ever go into a museum show and you see something that says collection of the artist and you've got the money to buy or you know somebody who has and you think it's an important work, that is the code for it is available for sale. They never say it, but that's what it means. All right, Erin, talk now a bit about the APT and about um, the building up of the collection uh, on the Asia-Pacific side there, because Queensland's been remarkable. So um, just some quick statistics. Uh, my, the Asian and Pacific collection is about um, 3,300 works. 3,300. Yeah, and that's made up of about 1,200, which is um, contemporary Asian there's less, just less than a thousand works from the Pacific, and then we also, um, I also look after the historic Asian collection as well, and there's about a thousand works in 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 that collection. The 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 bulk of the um, contemporary Asian collection and also the Pacific collection was developed over the life of the APT, over the Asia-Pacific Triennial. And the model of the Triennial, I mean, Sydney has a biennial. There are, uh, the, the model of our Triennial is that it's an institutional model. Um, it is, we don't have an artistic director. Um, it, is, it is informed by the research of the, of the curatorial staff. And so I manage that team. Um, I'll be manage, managing them for the next APT in two and a half years' time. 
So what that, because we have over 25 years of curatorial research in, in, the, in the region, we're able to make um, decisions, informed decisions, I would say, about, about um, what we're seeing and, and some of the directions that we think that contemporary art is, is um, taking. The, um, I, I think uh, the, the collection has been built up over the entire life of, of it. So when you look at, um, it, it, I, because I, I'm, I'm new to the collection, I've, I've spent over the last six months a bit of time uh, looking at the collection strategically, you know, it, it's how, how it was bought. So there were a number of, in 1993, which was the first uh, first AP team, a lot of the work that was collected was from Southeast Asia because it was uh, one of the core uh, core areas that was that we were focusing on. And it also, um, uh, at the same time, there was a very important uh, fund which was made available to us, which is the Kenneth and Yusuke Maya mm. um, fund, which mm. allowed us to build a collection of contemporary, contemporary Asian art. So from 1993 to um, 2006, um, the collection grew to such a point where they realised th that um, well, the, the collection was one of the reasons why the why Goma was built. So the the Queensland Art Gallery is over two sites: the the old gallery and also and the Gallery of Modern Art. So the 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 Asia Pacific collection is also one of the uh, very important. It's, I think it's, it is the flagship of the of, of the institution. A um, question about that. It's known all over the world. If you travel over the world and anywhere, and you say Australia contemporary art, they will say the APT <coughs> because it is. It did something that no one did before, and uh, and there's quite a lot of jealousy around uh, it. You know, one doesn't want to be negative, but be realistic. Humankind being what it is, um, <coughs> there have been other uh, museums that have tried to focus on contemporary art from Asia. Um, one of them being the um, museum in the southern part of Japan. Jasmine, you might know it. Uh, yes, Fukuoka. Yes, and they haven't done it as well. I, uh, I don't know. Maybe Fukuoka is too hard to get to. It's, you know, you have to, it's not a main centre in Japan. Have you been there, Rach? No, I've been there. It's, it's you know, it's a big town. You, the population in Japan is 130 or 40 million, so nothing, we've got a tiny population by comparison. Um, but this... Oh, I'm sure. But it's, uh, no, it, uh, Jasmine was saying, this is Jasmine Stephen, saying that it was had a great impact on the lives of individual artists. But I think as a, a kind of flagship um, series of exhibitions that the world would notice, it hasn't been anything like the APT. The APT had, talk about the seminars in the early days. Uh, well, there were it, fights at the seminars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can certainly say that, I, I mean, I think it's, you know, one of the best, if not the best, Biennale or Triennale events in the world because it's completely unique. Mm. I mean, even today, no one else is doing it. Mm. You know, whenever I travel and people ask about Australia, the first thing I say is, you actually, you need to go to Brisbane. You mm. need to time mm. your visit. Go see the Asia-Pacific Triennale. It will unlock doors. You will see all sorts of practice that you would never see otherwise, would not be able to access. I mean, I see lots of work in the APT mm. that... I've never seen before. It's it's revelatory every time. And a lot of the artists uh, in every catalogue we do, which I uh, described those catalogues at the beginning, I, I write in the preface why I chose that artist. That's my job for the preface. And mostly, not always, but mostly I've seen the work initially at the APT. It's, it's just been like... Wow, here's an artist from the Philippines, never heard of them before. Look at this amazing work. Here's an artist from uh, North Korea, never, you know, and so it goes on. Mm. So it's been more important than, than probably anybody's ever been able to articulate because if you're in it, you can't boast about it. And if you're not in it... Um, 
well, you can boast about it, so that's what I'm doing. <laughs> the, the, t- the timing is also very important because uh, where now there is a much greater understanding of, of um, new markets for contemporary art. Mm. China a couple of years ago, India at some point, mm. the Philippines at the moment. The emergence of APT happens not... Uh, actually helps to drive uh, some of the those um, broader conversations. So it it, it it the there were burgeoning scenes that were that were um, uh, vibrant scenes in in these locations which we were able to tap into mm-hmm. and which developed at the same uh, in similar at similar times that we were developing mm-hmm. and, and the three year period allows us to to um, go over. The same ground to to and so we have a we have a long view of the of the region and, and that can also be seen in the collection. But in Fukuoka's defence, that their their um, model is very different to our model. It's an art, yes. it's an art historical model. So what you find is that their curators so um, they get assigned particular regions and that they, they research those regions in depth. So there are uh, Japanese curators who um, have been working in Bangladesh, for instance, for the entire life of I the Fukuoka. Oh, Fukuoka. Well, I didn't realise yeah. that. Yeah. Yes. I'll I tell you a funny story about Fukuoka, which in a way has, I suppose, made me feel a little... Um, uncomfortable with them. Years and years ago when I was in the selling gallery, I went to Fukuoka to, it was just started, and I went to sell work by Australian artists. I thought, we're in the region, Asia Pacific, Australia's here. This uh, gallery, uh, museum, says they're collecting art from the region. Well, here I am. Uh, Do you know anything about Australian art? No. So I said, well, would you like to know more? No. So I said, why? They said, because yet again, and this was very specific and quite hurtful, although I did understand it, again, you've got this white woman coming and telling us what to do. And and Australia, as far as they were concerned, you can see yourself in the Asia-Pacific region until you're blue in the face. But as far as we are concerned, uh, we're not interested in Australia. And that has been um, a... I mean, Rachel, you must admit, it's not an... Uh, it's not unheard of, that kind of comment. What kind of art do you... Sh- what artists are in Australia? Where do they belong? Are they derivative? It comes back to what you were saying earlier about we're here, the British, and then the American, and then the geographic and the trade. So have you had any experiences like that where people have said, but who are Australian artists? What... What, how would we identify them? Actually, I had that exact question a few months ago in Hong Kong. Mm, <laughs> yeah, me. I did a seminar um, with Christie's just talking about, um, you know, museums and how they collect and so on. And there was a person, in, and mainly it was attended by people who were, who were patrons and collectors from mainland China. Um, and one of the questions was along those lines. It was just like... When you think about Japanese contemporary art, you have something in mind. Mm. When you think about Chinese art, likewise, I have nothing in mind about Australian <laughs> contemporary art, you know, like, you know, you guys are the tadpoles kind of thing. Um, and it was a really interesting discussion because a lot of it is perception. Um, you know, it's something I think that perhaps people grapple with until they come to this country and they spend a bit of time, they start to engage and they understand that it's unbelievably diverse and because of that it's incredibly rich. Mm. Um, I mean, I often feel for the artists living and working here because it's incredibly hard. Mm. You know, it it does have to grapple with its geography but I've never seen a more mobile group of people that, you know, Australian artists travel a lot. They're always applying for residencies, grants, exhibition opportunities in other parts of the world, you know, um, and they try very hard to position themselves. But it is a challenge. Mm. It's, it's easier now with technology and a lot of moving image work. But in the old days, when you had to send an exhibition in specially prepared crates, the crates alone cost tens of thousands of dollars before you'd even 
put them on a plane or even on a ship or paid the customs clearance or uh, had them delivered uh, door to door, which in Japan costs an absolute fortune. So by the time you got the show there, the costs were so enormous. And then people, as Rachel said earlier, um, they don't know what they're coming into. So to get an audience, they think, oh, Australian contemporary art, what, what, you know, what, what's that? Uh, do I need to cross Tokyo in order to see a show? I'm too busy. You I know. might add to that. Yes. I mean, one thing, again, that I guess distinguishes the MCA um, is that although we maintain a very large international program of changing exhibitions, I mentioned earlier we just collect Australian artists' work for our permanent collection. There is a pragmatic reason for that, which is that we have, you know, very modest funds annually to purchase work. You know, we work with patrons and donors. We raise different pockets of money in various ways. But essentially, it's a slender budget, comparative, say, to the state galleries that can buy a lot more work. And so what we decided to do um, over 10 years ago now is rethink the collection policy and say, okay, let's... There's no point competing with the state galleries they're buying all the international work anyway we can't afford it let's use our small funds and put it into the local community and it was really such a smart thing to do it's been a way to really grow and support that community you know we you know we sort of say we put our money where our mouth is you know we show an artist's work from this country and we buy it. We find ways to purchase. Um, when we built our new wing and refurbished the MCA, we created three floors of exhibition space and the middle floor, which is huge, is completely dedicated to our permanent collection. So it's actually a really good introduction and overview to some of the key things that are happening around the country right now. It's filled with school children and it's filled with interstate and international visitors. That's wonderful. So if for those who haven't been to the MCA, there's Telling Tales, Rachel Show, and that middle floor, which is the uh, sort of introduction or uh, extension of one's knowledge of contemporary uh, Australian art. What would you like to add? We've got about another 10 minutes and then I want to open it to the floor. Um, the only... Um, uh, the other statistic which I think is interesting is... Um, uh, the the growth of awareness of of Asian art through the APT. Mm. So um, APT eight, which closed um, earlier this year, there was six hundred and four thousand people. And that's travelling to Brisbane. You know, just think about that. It's it's, it's a lot. And, it's and a lot of people. Those um, I, I I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but they broke it down again. How many people were from interstate or from overseas? Mm. How many how many of that was from lo local locally? But if we you look, come twice or three yeah. times. We bring all yeah. that twice. Groups. Yeah. Uh, also because mm. of the you know the children's programs and all you know the the programming around around it. But if you look at that in the context of say the the first APT in 1993, which was only 60. 60,000 people. I mean, I say only. It's still a, no. it's still a, a, a lot of a lot of mm. people. But that growth um, uh, illustrates not just the you know the the, the size of the, the growing size of the institution, but I think the growing awareness and the growing um, understanding of the importance of, of contemporary art from from Asia and, and the Pacific. Yeah. Well, I think we uh, there are some people who have got things to contribute in the audience here. So, Andrew, gird your <laughs> think of think of and Anne as well about Vietnam. I think you know if share with some of the other people by asking questions, uh, or by sh even sharing something. It doesn't have to be a question. Um, yes, yes, please, Jasmine, go go ahead. And uh, directed to oh. one or other. Sophie, we've got a mark here. So, um, Aaron, you characterised the curatorial team at Quag Goma as taking a long view of the region. I wondered, uh, I like that phrase, if you could unpack and tell us what entails taking a long view of the region. Um, the... Uh, the 
coming from an in, an independent space into a museum, into a into an art gallery with a collection, you get to um, see how things were built and why things were built and who was who um, who was driving things at at particular times. So it, th that history is very is very interesting. And what you get to look at is. Um, uh, you know, things are, things are bought because they fit into other conversations that are happening within within the collection itself. So it's it's um, um, so that's one part of the, the the long view. The other part is that you know the it's a it's a ma major commitment. It's not just a um, a fashion, or it's not just something that is is new. I mean, there are some major international um, institutions who are trying to catch up. Um, and who I mean, we will never. We will probably. We will probably find it difficult to purchase um, certain kinds of contemporary art now. But we have a, a very, very good back catalogue, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you start early, and to talk. I don't know what you were intending to say, but apart from that, <laughs> would you? <laughs> Would you talk a bit about Tate and our committee, our APEC committee, because I think people are interested. Uh, well, look, the first thing I, I wanted to say, and then I will come to the Tate APEC, I think the thing that is really interesting about the APT is the commissioning and collecting model. And I must say, as you know, a long-standing board member of the Biennale of Sydney, when I think of the amount of wonderful work that we brought out to Sydney for the Biennale that then was subsequently sent back and uh, very, very little state in the country. I think the model in, uh, in, uh, of the APT in Queensland is a really, really uh, outstanding model. And that is that the curators get in early, they work with the artists, with a particular artist for a particular commission for the APT that becomes a cornerstone work in the APT and then is acquired by Quagoma, and correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly from where I sit, I would say that um, Quagoma would have the preeminent collection of contemporary Asian art in the world. In certain parts, I think. It's certainly Southeast Asian, and it's it's a really really remarkable, and it's a it's a it's a collection of world renown because. You've been doing it for 25 years. I think this commissioning collecting model is um, and collecting model is really robust and has paid you know enormous rewards. Um, it's a clever idea. Mm. Yeah, it's really it's been a really really good idea. Um, the just on the Tate APAC, well, Jean and I are uh, on a, a committee that the Tate has established. Uh, the Tate in London, of course, they have realised that for. Up until very recently, they've had kind of a black spot about the region uh, and about Australia in particular, but certainly uh, about the whole region. And it has uh, come into very sharp focus for them in the last uh, few years. And so they have put together a group of uh, citizens from the region, uh, collectors and, and um, supporters who uh, jointly work together um, to advocate, to uh, bring, when the curators come to uh, Australia or to the region, to introduce them to uh, artists, to curators in the, uh, in the particular um, locations, and then to acquire work for the Tate Collection. Um, what the, one of the really notable examples just recently is um, the work with, which has been done here in Australia where the Tate, t together with the MCA, with some money that came from the Qantas Foundation, have committed to acquire quite a significant collection of work by um, a small number of Australian artists, uh, collecting those artists' work in some depth, and that will go into the permanent collection of the Tate in London, uh, and obviously be available to be curated into, into shows in London and elsewhere in Europe. So. Uh, that's a kind of a very t immediate tangible dividend from the Tate APAC strategy, but APAC obviously, uh, Asia-Pacific uh, Acquisitions Committee, um, and I think expect to see more of us around. Mm. I think that the Tate in London is sitting there with a very Eurocentric uh, collection saying, wow, you know, there's this part of the world with four billion people in it that we've kind of really uh, neglected, mm. and they are, I can assure you, are putting a lot of uh, resources and time and effort really now are. into this region. Yeah. 
Thanks so much, Andrew. Anyone else? And do you want to add something a bit about Vietnam? to look at your wonderful works in situ in Canberra. They look fabulous. It does look good there, doesn't <laughs> they it? They look wonderful, yes. yes. No, they've done yeah. a very nice yeah. hang, yeah. yes. This Judith Nielsen, White Rabbit, yes. has got one single work in a sort of grand room, and then in the adjacent room downstairs, they've borrowed uh, what Rachel showed first, the family portrait, and they've borrowed some other Zhang Huan work from our collection, some Lin Tian Miao work from our collection, and some Ai Weiwei work from our collection, and it's very yeah, well, well done, so yes, thanks for yeah. that, Anne. Mm, uh, talk about Vietnam a little. Oh, <laughs> well... Well, I'd have to say Just that your the, own experience. Ah, well, I, I would have to say that um, seeing works like the works from Ding Kulei that was yes. at the APT and then the wonderful yeah. work yes. here has, just opens people's eyes, I think, to works mm. from Vietnam that don't often get seen by Australians because when we go there as tourists, you'd... You often don't go to the art galleries. <laughs> and it, if you did go to the yeah. art gallery, it wouldn't change anything. Yeah, yeah. but I, I would say... <laughs> true. But I, I must say that one of the most amazing experiences I've had in Sydney is, is um, for a working with Dardang Cristanto yes. in an amazing yes. uh, exhibition. And I, I think, I mean, the thing about uh, Din and some of those other Vietnamese artists is the the role that um, uh, that institutions play, like APT or, or other institutions who present this work, gives artists opportunities to present things and make things that at that time were probably not possible to present in their own countries. Yeah. Um, Din so, can't show in yeah, his own country yeah, yeah. at all. Yeah. Uh, the censors are yeah. looking over his shoulder yeah. Yeah. and the only place he can show places is anywhere yeah. outside of yeah. Vietnam. So there's a broader cultural um, history that's at play that you can see through exhibitions. Um, you know, North Korea, is, as, as, as you said, is, is one extreme through to, you know, at certain times that some of the works of the Chinese artists that, that could only be presented um, elsewhere. Yeah. I think that's an important... Yes, Zhang Huan, yes, and uh, even Tsai Gorch. Well, Tsai less so, but certainly Ai Weiwei, yes. Yeah, yes. Totally. yes. Any other questions now? There's a question. Yeah, Sophie's got the mic, because we put this on podcast. Um, I have a question of Aaron. I'm Barbara Dowse, curator with Arterial Gallery, which is a commercial gallery, and we do have a large percentage for... a. Of, of Asian heritage mm. um, artists that, that we show. Aaron, when you're sourcing artists for APT, do you look, um, the selection criteria when you're looking, um, are they more for artists with established reputation or do you also gather up in the process those maverick or emerging artists that um, um, are perhaps not on the general radar? I mean, I think that the the great thing about these big periodic shows is you, you get to see things that you've never seen before. Mm. So I don't think that we'd be doing our job properly if we weren't looking as widely as we as we could possibly be looking. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah. Anybody else, guys? Don't feel shy, Peter. Come on. No, I know you're not shy. <laughs> there's a there's a microphone. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a curator of uh, contemporary art. I'm, I'm, I'm of my grandchildren's pieces. But the, you made mention of China's interest uh, in in the art, and the, what I'm, I'm questioning is: is that make having an effect on the value of of contemporary art? Because the Chinese collection um, community have made a dramatic effect on things like collectibles, like like uh, vintage cars and watches. That's had a huge impact. And wine as well. And wine, exactly. Yeah. Mm. And is it having a similar effect on, on contemporary art? Um, I think that the, the short answer is yes. Mm. But it's not just the Chinese, of course. Um, that the, the, There are emerging markets everywhere. So, I mean, one of the... Indonesia and the Philippines in the last couple of... The last little while has had um, 
um, and also Hong Kong, for instance, as a as a as a as a meeting place for for uh, dealers and collectors. Th these um, uh, does have an impact on the price of work, but you know they're um, but they. I think we also need to remember that 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 an artwork has a value also outside of its monetary uh, context as well. So um, there are things that we love we love showing which we could never afford to buy, um, and that's 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 a, a privilege too. It's just that for sorry, James, yes, no, for for certain people who are keen on collecting, yeah. and are, are um, like collectibles, finding that certain. Items are just becoming unaffordable because of the emergence of the Chinese um, capitalism and where they've got the ability to buy the things that they couldn't purchase before. Yeah. And it's having a, a major effect worldwide on collectibles. So and I'm not sure if it's happening with Australian contemporary art, but it's, um, it's, you know, it's just interesting to know whether they've had an effect on their own. On the, on the Asian yeah. Pacific region. What do you say to that? I mean, it's not selling and, and prices are not your sort of, you know, mm. a, a where you're working. Oh, look, I, I mean, I think in the case of China, it had a particular moment, you know, in the, you know, mid-80s through the 90s, it did, as that exhibition was called, it went pop. You know, and it was, you know, Malgo's pop. It was a kind of contemporary Chinese version of pop art. And there were certain artists who've survived that moment, who continue to have extraordinary and strong careers internationally and within the region. Um, but, you know, a lot of that work now, I think it's kind of done its day as well. But I think Peter's talking about the people buying the work, not the artists who have survived. And yeah, but, yes. this, but that work was, you know, it became so incredibly expensive. Yes, enormously I mean, so. that was, yeah. Um, these days, I mean, there's still, I think, a really strong, strong, strong art market when it comes to Chinese art. Um, but it's shifted a little um, and it's opened out a bit, I think. Um, I mean, there's some incredible collections out there of contemporary Chinese art. I mean, I had a look at, you know, Wooly Sig's exhibition just recently in Hong yeah. Kong. I mean, it's it's the most fantastic history from the 70s to the present. Um, and it's actually so much more diverse than just those really popular, really pricey things. He's gifted a huge portion of that collection to M Plus, as we know. But I, I thought what you meant, Peter, was uh, whether they collect Chinese art or any other art, yes, um, there, are, there is an impact when you've got a lot of money being poured into a situation. Obviously, prices generally go up, whether they're buying European art or uh, Southeast Asian art. Art. One uh, uh, um, interesting kind of consequence of Chinese, uh, the rise to power of Chinese entrepreneurs is that many of them are building private museums. There's almost one going up a week. And uh, I've been to China recently and Bambi had to go, but we're going to a seminar at the Long, the Long Museum in November. The Long Museum uh, is is the second museum, the one in the Pudong district, that's been built by Chinese collectors. Wang Wei is the woman's name. I forget the man's name now. Yes, and um, this is their second museum and they've got a third one coming up. So not only are they buying art, whether it's Chinese or not, they're buying art as Chinese collectors to fill all these museums, but they are building museums in order to showcase their art, which then encourages other Chinese. But I think the difference between property wine uh, and the other collectibles that you are talking about, it's not as easy to skew the market with contemporary art because the other collectibles, say property, uh, all over the world, the Chinese are coming in and buying up the most expensive properties. Everyone lives somewhere and property is for everyone who can afford it. But contemporary art is a relatively small, you know, then it, it's not as impactful. That would be my answer. Andrew, what do you think about that? No, seriously, I mean, you've seen the Chinese on our committee, for example. Markets are very fickle, and I think that um, when I think of the art market, I think of this kind of thing that exists outside what I would regard as the art world. Um, 
and it's a kind of white noise that sort of plays around, um, but it's not a determinant of a determinant of real value. And I think it was it was. Uh, of Rachel or Aaron, who said that, you know, there are things that are valuable in the, in the collection and there are things that aren't but with monetary value, but they all have a, a reason for being in the collection and a real value in the collection. And I think it's... it's, it's we need to... I, I think we need to be really careful of, mm. of kind of attaching monetary value to art. Uh, and certainly there are... There would be people who have been very badly burnt. In other words, they've paid huge amounts of money for things 10... Ten years ago, that were very fashionable and are worthless today. That's so, partly what you were saying. It, it, yeah. It's you know, I, I think the art market is not the art, the real art world. And um, I mean, I take Peter's point about you know the weight of Chinese money generally in all markets. But that's you know, I, I always get concerned when people talk about the art market and the monetary value of artworks. Mm. I think that's really not what it's all about at all. I think we should uh, finish here. We've got an Indonesian collector coming to talk. I forget the date. Sophie, do you remember when Dr. Wiyu is coming? 10th of September. He's flying in. He's the most serious collector in Indonesia. He's an engineer by profession. And um, he is the kind of connect collector with a long view, the kind that, uh, you know, like us and uh, like Andrew, you, you're not just, you know, they're people who buy work and then hope to sell it next, next month for a profit. These are people who are piecing together, like Uli Sig from 1970 to 2016, piecing together a picture of something, a story of something that begins somewhere and has ups and downs and, you know, and then ends when I suppose they die, unless their kids take over. Some of those works will be vastly overpriced because of what Rachel said. The Chinese work that uh, Uli's bought, some of it will have had its day. No one will want it. But then there's also... Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's got very good provenance, yes. But some of it, right, you talk about well, some I mean, of the work. I mean, some of that work, yeah, it would have very little monetary value, but it's really groundbreaking experimental work that has a place in the long view of art history and Chinese contemporary practice. You know, incredible performance works, um, you know, works made by collectives of artists who are living on kind of on the fringes of um, the art world and often in relation to the government of the day. Um, you know, practices by female artists who've you know, really had to struggle to be um, acknowledged and to have a kind of platform from which to speak. I mean, there's just such a diversity of practices and I think that's what's interesting and that reflects what Aaron is talking about, which is that long view. So it's really not about the monetary value. It's about the work that speaks today but also tomorrow and has something really interesting to say. I have to add, though, that uh, just uh, to make you happy, Peter, but it's a truth that it doesn't matter how much one talks about the long view and, and everything Rachel says and uh, Andrew says and Aaron said is 100% right. But if an artwork in 100 years' time is still speaking to people, mm. it will be valuable financially. But if you buy it for that reason and hope that next month yeah. it, it's not the right approach... So I think it, it, the cultural value and the monetary value do meet at a point, but not everything. Yes. Yes. Always. Always. But Actually, you, uh, yeah. oh, I'm going to add one other okay. thing too. There's a huge difference between buying as a private collector and buying as a public institution. I mean. You know, we buy things, you know, for the MCA's collection that I wouldn't want to wake up to. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live with them. They're hugely important works for a range of reasons, you know, educational, social, cultural. But um, actually what I would buy as someone who's living with art is something quite different. Um, and again, often it'll have a different emotional resonance as well. So, yeah, there are all of those considerations too. Guys, let's thank our speakers. And, uh...